Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce and you're listening to Who the Fuck. On today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Christine Errico. And Christine is a confidence and transformation coach for cleft-affected individuals, helping them break free from self-loathing and shame to achieve a happy and fulfilling life full of confidence and acceptance. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you so much for having me, Nikki. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. I really enjoyed our first conversation. You were so informative and just such a bright light. And I'm really excited for our listeners to be able to hear your story and the work that you're doing to help others. Do you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself and your background and how you've come to be a transformation coach? Sure, absolutely. So I was born with a bilateral cleft lip and palate. And what that means is that my upper lip and palate never properly closed or formed during uh, development. So as a result, I needed more than 20 surgeries to uh, repair my lip and to close it so I could be able to eat, breathe, and talk normally. Uh, as a result, I've learned to develop resili- resilience. I've had to overcome adversity, a lot of childhood bullying, a lot of self-shame, being told I would never accomplish, I'd become anything. And most of all, just the feeling of being different, but also looking different, because I do have scars on my upper lip. And so I always felt like a monster and I had so much shame and loathing and I just had no confidence. Um, I was afraid to talk to people. I was afraid to be seen. So over the years, I kind of learned to deny who I was, deny myself and how I look and just stuff everything behind. Um, About five years ago, I decided I didn't want to live like that anymore. I wanted to be out there. I wanted to enjoy life and, you know, give what I had to offer. So I decided to start working on myself. It's actually a much longer process than I think we have time for today, but that's the short version. I started to work on myself. I learned how to uh, be comfortable and accept myself for who I was and how I looked and realized there is no shame because this is all of me. This is who I am. And so now I take what I've learned about developing self-confidence, self-esteem, resilience, and I share that with clients who want to achieve the same goals in life or similar goals and want to be comfortable with themselves, comfortable in their own skin, and want to go out there in, in the world with confidence. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like what you're describing is something that I feel, regardless of what your life circumstances is something that we all seek to have that feeling of acceptance, that feeling of acceptance, both from ourselves and from other people. And then also the confidence to walk into the world as the person that you are and not feel like you have to fit a certain mold and that you are able to help people grow by exploring those differences and not necessarily having to fit into this box that people have either built for us or believe that we should be in. And I really admire your just really the joyful approach I feel that you bring to what you're doing. It really showed up in our first conversation. I listened to your TED talk, which was really great. And it opened my eyes a lot to the experience that people must have when they're growing up with uh, what you've referred to as a facial difference. And I I think one of the things that I'm curious about is, you know, it it breaks my heart to hear you say, you know, you felt like a monster and that people treated you so poorly. I grew up getting bullied a bit. A lot of people told me that I looked like a boy. I actually have done a couple of TikTok lives with my wife recently, and they've there's been a lot of commentary around my my either looking like a man or that I must be trans. I'm not offended by that. It actually really pokes at this part of a core wound I have from my childhood where I was made fun of for looking like a boy. And so while I can't relate directly to your experience, I do understand that lingering feeling of shame and self-doubt that comes with kind of being told your whole life that like you're not good enough and you don't fit in here. And 
when you speak about really the length of your journey and getting to where you are, was there a specific moment that initiated that desire to really lean into who you are more than you had before? It wasn't so much a specific moment as much as it was a, a longstanding journey. Um, it really all started when I got into a severe motorcycle accident and I left, I broke my wrist in the accident. I needed to stay with my sister. Uh, we, she lived five hours away from my husband, now my ex-husband. And I'm trying to make the story short because it can get really, really long. I was in an abusive marriage um, and I was in that marriage for about 10 years. You know, like most victims and most women who are in abusive marriages, you feel that there's no way out, no escape. And it also can be very, very scary to leave. And that's how I felt. I was isolated from my family, my friends, both physically and emotionally. So when I had that motorcycle accident and I broke my wrist, I stayed with my sister because I needed physical therapy. I had three surgeries on my wrist alone. I knew going back home for the recovery would not be possible. I would not be able to recover, get the ther physical therapy I needed. When I was away from my ex-husband and had that separation and stayed with my sister for a couple of months, I got clarity and I realized what I needed to do. But I was so afraid, not only for what he could do, but I got the confidence. I didn't know how to be on my own. My whole life, I was either with my mother who took care of me, my advocate for my surgeries and my medical needs, or went right from living at home to you know getting engaged, getting married, and then living with my ex-husband. So I was never independent to figure out who I was as a person. When I realized that I was much happier without him and I you know, knew what I needed to do, I started going to therapy. Slowly, we just kind of tried to get my life back on track, uh, starting the procedure for divorce and leaving him, building the confidence to tell him what was going on. And that was kind of like the slow, the, really the first step on what's been a multi-year, really a 10-year journey. But I say it was five years ago because that point five years ago was when I really, I found Smile Train. Up until that point, even though I had some confidence from, you know, leaving my ex-husband and starting to figure out who I was, I still denied the most important part of me. And that was the person, you know, me having a corrupt and palate and accepting that part. Um, one of the large reasons why I married my ex-husband is I thought I would never meet anybody else. I thought, you know, here was someone that was interested in me. I didn't date a lot in high school and college. So when we did meet and started dating, I thought, great, here's someone who's interested in me. He wants to marry me. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't share the same feelings for him, but I liked him enough to know that I could deal with this. And my whole thought when I was dating him and even getting married was, I'm not going to do any better. Who's going to want me? Who's going to, you know, it's not like I had a whole line of partners, you know, knocking down my door. So I, I did, I settled, I compromised myself. Um, that's something that I, I don't want to say I wish I never did because I learned so much from it, but I encourage all of my clients and everyone who's listening, never compromise, never think that that's the best you can do because you can always do better and never settle for second best. So to get back to the story, um, about five years ago, my mother passed away and her death hit me really, really hard because she was the only person in the world who was about as close to knowing what I went through in my life with my medical needs, my birth and palate. When she died, it really left a giant hole in my heart and in me of like, okay, now who can I talk to? Who's going to know what I've been through? Who can relate? So one day I was really desperate. I was lonely. I saw the one on Facebook for Cleft Lip and Palette, just doing a search, trying to find any information. I came across a Facebook group of other adults with a Cleft Lip and Palette. I joined the group, and that was really when everything started changing for me. I started to accept myself, uh, my whole self, especially my Cleft Lip and Palette. I started to talk about it more. Prior to that, I never talked about it. I didn't want to even think about it. But joining that group, it was kind of like, okay, you know, there's other people out there. And I knew of other people with a cleft at that time, but we never talked about it. So I never got to talk to anybody about it or just share a common, you know, experience about having it. So that group really started to help me come out of my shell, talk about it a little bit more, feel more comfortable. Then I got involved with Smile Train, which is an organization that provides medical treatment for children in undeveloped countries provides surgeries, but also strengthens the global communications and the community around Buffalo and Palace. 
I started volunteering with them. That helped me build my confidence a little bit more. Helped me realize, hey, you know, the voice, my voice needs to be heard. I need to help contribute to the community. I started building friends. And from there, I just kind of continued uh, on my advocacy work of sharing my story, meeting other people, contributing to building a community, volunteering with Smile Train, and continuing to build my own confidence and realize that this is who I was meant to be. And this is, you know, my message and my what I'm meant to do. I really appreciate you sharing that, Christine. I actually got goosebumps while you were sharing the first part of your story about your accident and going to stay with your sister while you were able to use that time to realize that you needed to exit your toxic marriage. I had a very similar situation in terms of an event leading to my having a moment of clarity and saying, like, I need to go back and be with my family for a while who lived across the country. I was in Seattle. My family's on the East Coast. And in that couple of months that I had, incidentally, my mother had actually passed away really unexpectedly as well. So it was this really just shock to my system about what I had been accepting and putting up with and allowing in my life. And so when you said, you know, you were hiding things from your family, uh, physically, emotionally, there was so much relatability in that for me that, you know, I understand how important it is to have that separation from the toxicity to be able to have the clarity that you need. And my hope is always that people will hear even just little bits and pieces of our stories and be able to gain that confidence to make sure that they are putting themselves first. And I love that you told people not to settle because I completely agree with that. And the other thing about really getting in touch with that part of yourself that you had I don't want to say fully denied because I imagine, you know, going through all the surgeries that you had to go through and needing the support that you needed throughout your life because of your cleft lip and palate, you're not ignoring it in full swing, right? You still have to address it. It's still very much an integrated part of your life. But emotionally, it sounds like you didn't really want to go there. Is that something that you feel you learned to keep inside as a result of the feedback that you were getting externally? as a child that really just continued onward into your adulthood? Absolutely, yes. You actually summed it up perfectly. I didn't ignore it physically. You know, the surgeries, the doctors talking about it, it's kind of hard to ignore. I ignored it emotionally and mentally. Uh, A lot of that was my mother growing up. She kept telling me that there was nothing wrong with me. I'm normal. Kept saying that she wanted to give me a normal childhood. Um, try to, you know, get me to have friends, which I did have friends. I was involved in Girl Scouts. Uh, so I had friends, but never knew or fully understood the extent of the bullying that I was experiencing in school, both from boys and girls, and especially when I got older and I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. Girls are relentless in their bullying, even more so than boys. They get catty and they get very uh, into the clips and it's just it's really, really hurtful. And so I never shared that with my mother because I kept it hidden. Uh, she was one that we were never going to show emotions. I didn't feel comfortable crying or expressing how I felt. He always was so strong. He told me to be strong and to ignore a lot of it. And so that was how I learned to just suppress everything that I was feeling and avoid the shame and avoid the um my, you know, the fact that I had no self worth, and I compensated by believing that I had more confidence than I did, and I really didn't. It was just kind of a mask that I put on, almost a performance of whoever anybody wanted me to be, what I needed to be in a moment or in a situation, and so that was primarily how I survived for most of my life. It makes me wonder: Do you feel like your mom was? Obviously, she was very supportive in making sure that you had the care that you needed as her child. But do you feel like part of what her desire to give you a quote unquote normal life, right? Um, Because what is normal? But, you know, have a typical childhood was partly her desire to, I guess, maybe mute societal impact to herself as well. I definitely think her actions and how she raised me and, you know, trying to give me that normal childhood. I think a lot of it was her just trying to cope with me having the cleft and looking different and the medical needs as best she could. 
you know, I remember that when I was born, she used to tell me how my father, and even my father admitted this, he's still alive, and he even tells me now when I was born how he was shocked and scared and even repulsed and angry. His words were, oh, my God, you know, how could this happen? What do we do now? He came from a generation and a family where his father believed that if you weren't perfect, you're not worth as, as having as a child. And so that also created a lot of conflict between my father's side of the, of the family that had trouble accepting me. And then my mother's side, who did accept me, who was trying to understand. So I think my mother felt very alone and she just tried to do the best she could to deal with what was going on. I grew up in the 70s, so there wasn't as much information or resources as there are now for new parents of a child with a class left. And I can only imagine how scary it was. Also, my mother even trying to work through some of the shame that she felt like maybe this was her fault, which it wasn't. There's no known cause for a cleft lip and palate. There's contributing factors, but no single reason. And so I think she was working through a lot of the shame and self-blame herself. And, you know, she was dealing with my sister, who was fine, unaffected by cleft. So she's trying to kind of just cope with all of the emotions and be strong. And I think her way of being strong was also denial and just kind of pushing through what you didn't want to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking as a child of parents who weren't always super open about those parts of their selves and their internalized shame. And I can imagine as a parent, you know, like you said, without having the resources, not having the knowledge, the internet's not there. You can't just Google it. You can't try to just find out the answers the way that we've gotten so used to today. And when I was preparing for our episode and I was just sort of reading a bit more about cleft lip and palate, I saw how many resources there are today and that there are multiple associations globally that are doing work to provide that support to families and to children earlier and often so that there is that sense of community and that ability to feel that you aren't alone in this. And one of the things that comes across so much when I have these conversations with people on the podcast, but then also just looking at social media and what other people say to their communities, it's this feeling of you want to belong. We want to feel accepted. We want to be part of something. And it's very difficult, as you pointed out, to be part of something fully, to feel that you are accepted as everything that you are, especially when you're younger and you're not being shown that type of acceptance. I was also a Girl Scout. And it's interesting that you said that because it it actually made me think about the fact that I had such really good friendships that I made with people in that group. And so despite, you know, moments in time where I was getting bullied quite a bit, you know, I did have foundational friendships through other organizations that I was part of or activities that I was doing. And I really appreciate that you can look back on your experiences. And despite all of that shame and what you weren't able to express, that you were able to it sounds like still form meaningful relationships and that you didn't isolate yourself so much that you felt even maybe more alone in what you were experiencing than you could have. Do you feel like that's an accurate statement? Absolutely, yes. I mean, growing up, I remember I just wanted to belong. I just wanted to feel, I don't want to say I wanted to feel normal. I just wanted to be accepted. And I think that's all that any of us want growing up. And even today, we just want to feel accepted, whether, you know, it's with people that have gone through similar situations or people who haven't, but still accept us for who we are. And so it wasn't until I started doing the work with Smile Train and, you know, as a coach to realize, and even joining the, the club community on Facebook, some of the groups that I'm in, that I realized this is what I've been looking for my whole life is that feeling of acceptance. And the community, you know, the club community is fabulous. We're very tight-knit. A lot of us know each other personally. We became great friends. But there's always room for growth. And my main objective and mission is for the world to realize what club club and palette is, to be aware of it, to know about it, so that they can accept us as well and not see us as, you know, judge us and you apply the stereotypes that, oh, because you have a facial difference, you must be less intelligent or you can't do anything. I've gotten passed over for jobs. I've gotten passed over, uh, you know, in school, I was told I would never amount to anything. They thought that because I had scars and I missed a lot of school with all my surgeries, it meant I was 
not not smart enough to do anything. And I kind of set out to prove them wrong by my accomplishments. And I have a PhD in accounting. I've been a college professor. I like to think that I'm putting intelligence and, you know, I, I gave a TED talk. So many of us, I know people in the classroom who are lawyers, um, marketing executives, police sergeant, professional ballet dancer, singer. I want the world to know so that they can accept us, but they accept everyone else. I think that that's such a really beautiful way of looking at the world too, because it goes to show people that there's so much more to each of us, right? There's okay. there's the outward perception and then there's the inward reality. And my wife and I were actually talking about this the other day. We were watching a show called Undateables. And it's, first of all, I said, I hate the name because I think it just inherently makes it seem like these people are not dateable, obviously. Right. But the premise is, you know, a little bit like Love on the Spectrum, if you've seen it, where there's a decent amount of people who uh, are on the autism spectrum who are trying to find partners, but also there are people with Down syndrome, people with different types of physical ailments or um, mental health issues, and just trying to find, you know, somebody to be with. They want a partner, they want love, they want that sense of safety, that sense of belonging. And it's really interesting to see how we as human beings are really configured almost to base things off appearance first, especially mm -hmm. if you have the gift of sight, right? When we're in the mind frame of thinking of people first and foremost of who they are by the way they look, we've already set a bias and we've already created some sort of notion that we understand things about that person that we don't actually understand. And it really makes me wonder, you know, what is it in people? And this is maybe a bit of a, a rhetorical question, but a conversation point, if you will, mm -hmm. you know, what makes people think that somebody with cleft lip and palate is not as intelligent as somebody who doesn't deal with that. And so it's like this, these are assumptions that we make based on something that is really disconnected from the reality of the birth difference. I think a lot of that prejudgment comes from lack of knowledge because there is so little knowledge. And this is one of the other things that I'm very passionate about. The birth rate for Clefmont and Hala is one in 700 babies globally. That's the same statistic as babies born with Down syndrome. Yet everybody knows what Down syndrome is. Even if you go out in the playground and you show a child a picture of another child with Down syndrome, they have some idea that that child is different, but still okay and still good, not you know an enemy, not someone to be feared. But if you show a child or an adult a picture of a baby with a cleft lip and palate or an adult with a cleft lip and palate that's been corrected, they don't know. I've gotten you know people asking me was I in an accident, was I burned? That you know children used to say I got kicked in the face by a horse or something happened to my mother during her when she was pregnant with me. So that lack of information is there and that creates fear. And we always fear what we don't know. So I think that the lack of acceptance and the prejudging the stereotypes when people see someone with a facial difference, whether it is, you know, the foot and palate or uh, any other facial differences that are out there, it just comes from a lack of awareness and fear and just they go to default what society tells them, social norms of, you know, okay, stay away, shelter. And I think it also has to do with them dealing with their own insecurities, not knowing how to act, not knowing how to talk to me, and maybe even just being, I guess, repulsed and ashamed themselves that they feel the way they do when they see someone with a facial difference. You know, they see it as not normal. They see it as maybe disgusting, even though they try not to. I mean, think deep in the back of their mind, they know that, you know, it is repulsive to them and so maybe they're just trying to cope and reconcile their own feelings that oh my gosh this baby is a cute little baby like all others how can they deal with that and how can they even talk to someone that talked to a mother of a baby that you know has a cleft lip when they're not at, at peace with that so I think that's a lot of what it is but education and awareness I always believe will help re resolve that so your career as a professor is uh, indicative of your desire to educate people. I feel like most of the people in my life that are educators in some capacity are lifelong educators. So even if it's not directly their career at that point in time, there's always this desire to teach and, and help make people more aware. And what you describe 
is such a an important component of getting to a place of acceptance and understanding in society, which is the empathy, because not only are you explaining the empathy that we need to have for ourselves and for each other, if the people in your community are affected by cleft lip and palate, but the people who are part of your community that aren't affected by it and need to understand more to be able to be more accepting. And I appreciate so much, Christine, your empathy for the people who are ignorant to it, because there's a difference between willful ignorance and just choosing to be ignorant, right? Mm -hmm. You can decide that you want to be more educated. My ex was a behavioral specialist for children with autism. And I learned so much about autism that all of these assumptions that I had that were sort of pre-baked into my head by society weren't really accurate. And it wasn't that they were any sort of intentional judgment. It was just ignorance. It was, I didn't understand what type of reaction a child with autism could be having, why they would be behaving that way, speaking more in broad terms here. But if you see a child having an outburst, you're thinking, the parent doesn't have that child under control. What you're describing, I feel, is really similar because we have this just immediate response to what it is that our expectation is versus what the reality is. And I'm curious if you feel that there is, in the time that you've been doing what you've been doing, have you seen growth in society, in the awareness for the people who aren't affected by cleft lip and palate? And I both mean people who have the cleft lip and palate, but also their family members, their communities. Or do you feel like that's still something that your community is grappling with to try to get the exposure? That's a great question. I think a lot of it is geographical. And I think overall, generally speaking, the community is still grappling to get the exposure. For me, we will never have that full exposure until you can say, oh, well, I have a cleft lip palate. And everybody says, oh, yes, I'm, I'm aware of what that is, like we do with Down syndrome. But we are getting there. But when I say it's geographical, what I've noticed is that in 2022, I had the opportunity to travel to Kenya and Colombia to see the work that Smile Train does in those areas. And just because of you know the limited resources, the lack of information, the lack of the internet, those communities were really unaware. A lot of the uh, people in society there were unaware of what cleft and palate is, to the point where they still believed it was a curse, or uh, they had cultural beliefs that it was demons, curse, or something that the mother did. It was really sad. And then I've known people in England and in the UK where they have a broader and a little bit more general understanding of cleft lip and palate and what it is. So when I talk to people from, you know, in that country, there was a little bit more awareness, a little bit more understanding. In the United States, I think we're getting there, but it's been very, very slow going. That's a lot of the work that Smile Train does through their outreach, through their community programs. That's what I do in my volunteer work with Smile Train is I work on a committee that helps raise awareness. We have annual conferences. We have interviews. We get out there and we just spread the word about this is what it is. More and more hospitals in the United States, especially children's hospitals, plastic surgeons, are aware of it. But I also think that there is so much more room for improvement. My other area that I'm also passionate about is Buffalo Palette is not taught as much in medical or dental school as I think it should be. I've been to so many dentists in my life, and I was fortunate enough when I was in my early 20s, I needed implants for my upper teeth. I went to a dental school, and I must have seen about 10 different dentists, everything from oral surgeons to prosthodontists, the ones that make false teeth, to regular student dentists. And none of them ever really knew about cleft and palate. And they said, well, I think I mentioned it before, I briefly mentioned in a textbook, and my professor briefly mentioned that this is a congenital birth defect. But I didn't really know, you know, and, and so they were almost like it's kind of that they got to work on me and, and learn from me. And I was very happy. I mean, talk about a very big, I guess, turning point for me, because at first I felt like a guinea pig, you know, just go in, get the work done. I'm not going to be your guinea pig. But then as I realized their excitement, I started to change my thinking. And I'm like, okay, you know, because they had the chance to work on me and work on my case, they can go out and now help other people and maybe even integrate it into their practice. I started to see it differently. But that's the other thing that I'm also passionate about is that why 
medical schools, dental schools don't educate and make it a, a core part of their curriculum, all the birth differences, not just plethora and palate. So I think, yeah, we're, we're making small little steps, but there's so much room to go and it's going to be a long journey and we're just going to keep at it. You have such an optimism that I appreciate, Christine. You raise a really important point. I would have assumed that people that are oral surgeons or dentists would inherently like need to have that understanding, mm -hmm. that awareness. And I can understand why maybe that might not be the case in totality, as you mentioned, regionally, um, what makes the most sense in terms of what's available. But in the United States in particular and other countries like the UK that you mentioned, it really does surprise me quite a bit because the emphasis on uh, oral health in the US in particular, I can say, is pretty high. I mean, growing up, I feel like there was a lot of information being shoved in our faces about mm -hmm. just keeping your dental health in a good place because it does affect so many other areas of your well-being. And it also really makes me so grateful to hear how you were able to turn your perspective around from, you know, I don't want to be a guinea pig to, well, me having to go through this experience is giving these people the opportunity to learn more, which then inherently gives them more understanding of the community of people who have cleft lip and palate. And for all you know, one of those people or multiple people in that group may have really been able to change like the way that they approach their career and the type of work that they do because they were able to be exposed to your experience. It's really just a beautiful sentiment. And I appreciate that you have that perspective and then that's the way you move through life. And I also feel like that energy that you bring, being able to communicate that to the people that are helping you and being able to be part of these organizations such as Smile Train, it really elevates the conversation and it gives people more perspective on how we as people unaffected by cleft lip and palate can help be more aware and more supportive of the community. Are there, to your knowledge, any sort of smaller groups, more like local places that are just trying to do more community awareness? Not that I'm aware of yet, but I know that, you know, well, well locally, I do know that there was a group in Indiana, um, and it's run, run by a woman, a mother of a child with a cleft lip palate. She created the Cleft Mommy's Bond of Friendship, a group there. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization that is just a support group for all parents, mothers of cleft children, children with a cleft. And so it's very few and far between. A lot of it is because I think those of us within the cleft community, um, those of us that are of my age, we're still struggling with accepting ourselves and being comfortable enough talking about it. And I think the younger generation is a lot more open. I've seen them be a lot more, you know, start blogs, write memoirs. So it's my hope that as we continue to, you know, uh, advance into society, new generations of children and people born with a club, they'll continue to create these little uh, geographical communities that can be, you know, places where we can meet in person. I know Smile Train is definitely trying to get something going. And it's still, the cleft community in general is still in its infancy. When I was born, you know, I'm 52 years old, so back in the 70s, uh, nobody ever talked about this. It was taboo to talk about if you had a child that was different, had a birth difference, anything like that. Smile Train wasn't around in the 70s. They're, you know, only about 20, 25 years old. So we've made advances uh, and it's slow, but I think that as we continue to evolve as a society, those uh, organizations and those groups will continue to form, continue to come forward. And I think there will be a time where we have global acceptance. So when you're doing the work that you're doing with Smile Train or even separately, if you're working with other people with cleft lip and palate, are you typically working with people of all ages or do you work specifically with children or adults? <laughs> I work primarily with adults who have, who at least have gotten to a point where they're comfortable enough talking about their club and now they want to develop their confidence and develop their self-esteem and their self-acceptance so they can feel like they can go out in the world and not be held back by anxiety, social anxiety, lack of confidence, lack of maybe 
setting boundaries, feeling like they have to compromise themselves. So I help them get the courage and the confidence and the strength to go out and ask for what they want and learn how to manage uh, emotions, especially intense emotions. You know, drawing on what I learned in my own experiences of managing my own emotions, where I went from denying them and stuffing them away and pretending they didn't exist to embracing them and learning how to cope when I get a, a traumatic flashback or a triggering memory, you know, something that was very especially difficult during COVID when we all wore masks. And for me, masks were very triggering because it reminded me of all the surgeries and all the hospitals I was in. Whereas I know a lot of my friends with a cleft and have it appreciated the mask and they can go out and wear it and feel normal because nobody can see them. For me, it was different because I felt like now I was hiding who I was. I was hiding what I worked so hard to be proud of my scars. And now I was hiding them. But it also triggered the medical trauma that I had to, that I had and I was working through. So I work with my clients to help them manage when those traumatic memories come up and how they can safely and a little bit more efficiently work for them, how to manage the emotions of the intense anger or the shame that we felt growing up and how to cope with that, especially when, you know, you're out in the place and you feel like everybody's staring at you. And, you know, I help them realize, well, are they really staring at you? And if so, you know, is that is that an issue to the point where it's going to change who you are? And are you going to take that and say, I must be horrible because everybody's staring at me? Or would you just say, okay, they're scary because maybe they're uneducated or they're scared. You're not going to take that as your own personal label. So that's primarily what I do now as a coach, mostly with adults. Children, I don't work with too much, mostly because they're still in that developmental stage. But I am, I'm open to working with all age groups and people who just want to have more self-confidence. They don't necessarily have to have a facial difference. If you just want to work on building your self-confidence and um, reaching your goals, I can help you out in that area as well. Christine, that's such a great statement to make about how it's not necessarily about you. My wife and I, when we first met and we were talking about just sort of our own insecurities in life and needing to come up with a mantra. And I said, I think we just need to have the mindset that it says more about them than it does about you, you know? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And and that really rings true to me. I battled self-confidence for a long time. I feel so much like a different person, honestly, Uh, in the last few years, this transformation, it's like the core of who I am has always been this, but it was really uncomfortable to expose that and to feel like you're very vulnerable when you're doing that, that Mm -hmm. the things that you're insecure about potentially could be leading to further discomfort or you might be isolated whatever the circumstance might be. And once you get to a place where you can really own who you are and feel a sense of pride in what you've accomplished because you've worked through that shame, it levels you up, you know, it Mm -hmm. gives you a much different air when you walk about the world because you're not coming from a place of insecurity where you feel a bit shrouded in the shame Instead, you're able to walk with more confidence into situations where you may previously have felt more either ridiculed or just fear ridicule or judgment of any kind. And so when I hear you say all of those things, you're right. It doesn't necessarily have to be a birth difference. It could be anything in your life that leads to these feelings of insecurity, this internalized shame, this difficult to manage emotional stress. And Mm -hmm. so when you are helping people who have come to you looking for a way to grow and really feel like they love who they are, what's sort of the start of that process look like? So we start by examining where the shame began and whether it's the internal core shame and how that affects their life now. Does it keep them from going out, maybe from dating, from meeting friends, from going after the job of their dream? And then we start to work at what goals do they want? You know, if a client wants to go ahead and get their dream job, maybe as an actor or a TV news person, but they're afraid that they'll get rejected or they're not good enough, we start working on realizing that they are good enough. They have the value and they have the capacity to do anything that they want and that 
anybody that kind of rejects them, it's not a statement of them or their failure or their abilities. It's rather a statement of society and that they just have to know that they are worth asking for what they want. So I start by identifying, helping the clients realize where that shame comes from. And then we work through that, uh, always with a forward-looking perspective as coaching, which is very different from therapy. We look to the future. We look to the goals. We don't dwell on the past. Many of my clients, we work concurrently with therapists to help process that past trauma and that past shame. And then what I do is I say, okay, you know, let's look at the emotion behind it. We really delve into the emotions, the feeling behind it. And then we move forward and say, okay, and I give them tips and tricks, for example, if there are a lot of social anxiety, something that I struggled with, and I have a great story that happened over the weekend. Um, my sister and I went out to dinner. We asked for a nice tea. The waitress bought a water. My sister commented, and I said, well, ask the waitress how long you want your ice tea. And she says, no, it's fine. I'll just deal with the water. It's okay. And I had to kind of find my place as not being the overbearing big sister, but also wanting to, like, you know, don't settle for water when you really wanted a nice tea. And I also remembered in that moment, I was there five, six years ago, you know, when I would go out to a restaurant and the waiter or the waitress brings you water instead of iced tea. I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to make a scene. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't feel I was worthwhile asking for what I wanted. So I did the same thing my sister did. I said, no, it's fine. I'll, I'll take the water. It's okay. Because I was too ashamed and too embarrassed to ask to be seen. So when I work with my clients now, when we have that social anxiety, what I've learned to deal with it is, you are worth being seen. You're worth asking for what you want and getting what you want. I mean, what a reason, you know, not going to go out and rob a bank because you want a million dollars, but yeah. asking, when you ask for a glass of ice cream, you're brought water. There's nothing wrong. And a lot of it is working through the fear. That was the biggest thing I had. I know a lot of my clients have is when you ask for what you want, there's the fear that you're going to get rejected. You're going to get yelled at. You're going to get told no, but not in a polite no, but rather a nasty you know, and then it's going to lead to the bullying and it's going to lead to the shame and it's going to lead to just exposing yourself and putting yourself out there, which is why I think many of us with social anxiety tend to stay quiet. It's safe. It's comforting. We don't have to push ourselves and, you know, deal with the scary, oh my God, you know, what if they give us an attitude? What if they say no? Mm -hmm. And then because we've had so much attention in our lives, I feel like we don't want that attention anymore. So again, why we just stay quiet? So I give them skills and a little bit of activities. I always, you know, start by saying, well, to overcome social anxiety, go in the grocery store and ask for something that you know they have and you know where it is. You just ask for it anyway. Or go into like McDonald's and just march right up to the bathroom and use the bathroom, even though you have no intending of buying anything. Yeah. Because if you do it when it's not a critical moment, then you develop the confidence that when it does matter, you can do it a little bit easier. And it's, it's practice. A lot of confidence building is just regular daily practice. That's such good advice, Christine. And mm -hmm. such a great example too, because it's something I'm sure we've all experienced. It's the same way when you're like, I didn't like my meal at a restaurant or something. And I'd always say that my mom would have been the person to send it back. And I would be like, I would never, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's like, it doesn't say something about you as a human being to be like, I don't like this. Asking for what you want, as you pointed out, is something that I think as people, we are very hesitant to do unless we're pre-baked with that confidence. And so when you're somebody who has existed in a sense of shame, or for me, it was like a very subdued but present self-loathing. I didn't realize mm -hmm. until a couple of years ago how hard it was for me to say that I actually liked myself, let alone could love myself. It's like, I didn't understand that those situations that you just described are effectively microcosms of this much larger thing that you're dealing mm -hmm. with because so mm -hmm. much of it is reprogramming what we already know. And sometimes what we know, quote unquote, is just what we've been taught through our experiences and not what reality may be. And as you pointed out, that fear of rejection, I know for me personally, is really where that hits. It's that I'm not worried that the waitress is going to be just like an absolutely horrible person to me because I've asked for my iced tea instead of my water. But it's the anticipation 
mm-hmm. of yes. what the response is going to be. And the anticipation is the, what generates all of that anxiety. And so I, yes. I think it's great practice, as you mentioned, go in and put yourself in situations where like you're a little uncomfortable, but you're in control of it more instead of feeling like I'll just take what I've been given and move on, you know? Mm-hmm. I'll never forget the first time I actually tried that. I was out to dinner with my sister and the waiter brought me the whole wrong dish. And it wasn't what I ordered, but I looked at it and said, well, you know, I can deal with this. And then I realized if I say yes and I don't send it back, I'm compromising myself. And then I started to try to work on this is very early on in my journey. And then the fear settled in and the anxiety. And it was catastrophic. You know, it wasn't like you said, just saying no. It was having the courage to speak up and Am I worth it? And again, just wanting to be hidden my whole life and being told that I don't matter. It's, you know, just deal with it. That was something that was always told to me. Just deal with it. You have to put up with it. Your surgeries, the pain, the shame, the bullying, just deal with it. So I've learned to just deal with it. But I realized I don't have to. And the world didn't come to an end. I didn't get struck down by lightning. He didn't throw the food in my face. All of the horrible scenarios that I had seen in my mind in those 30 seconds of debating, do I ask? for my meal to be corrected or not. He was very polite and he was like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm so sorry about that. Give us a couple of minutes. And when he brought my meal and I was able to really enjoy it, I was like, okay, you know, and even today I still get that surprise and almost awe like, oh my God, I could be living this way. And it's like really like being a whole new world and just seeing a whole new, you know, a whole new way of living so much happier, so much more content. And a lot of that feeds into my positivity and the optimism that I have now and why I'm able to give that because I do love life more. I enjoy it. And I'm not afraid to say no. I'm not afraid to set boundaries. I'm not afraid to ask for what I want. It's not personal. The best thing that someone ever told me, and this is actually my therapist, and when he told me, I thought it was so mean and so crude and it took me almost months before I finally realized and uh you know realized what he was saying he told me he said it's not all about you it's never about you and I thought that's a horrible thing to say to a client as a therapist and he encouraged me to let it sink in and just think about it and I did and as I go through life I realized it's not about me you know and it's okay I mean it's not in a selfish way it's just it's not about me because everybody's going about their life with their own issues their own thoughts their own anxiety their own stressors and so if you say no to somebody that's pushing your boundaries then they may be annoyed they may be offended they may yell at you it's about them it's about them accepting your rejection yeah it's not about you being a bad person which is what I always believe Yeah, absolutely. And you're totally right. You go through life experiencing it in a certain way. And then you make this decision to prioritize you and your comfort and what you need. And as you said, within reason, right? But but Mm -hmm. when you do that, you now are also showing people how to treat you, which is something I think is commonly said, right? And when I got to a place a couple of years ago, it was actually, so it was right around probably March will be two years when my mom had passed away and I was going through this really tumultuous divorce and I'd cut off all my hair. I had my best friend who's my stylist back East diet, like bright, bright red. Cause it was my mom's favorite color. And I strolled back into my house one night after hanging out with her and recorded this message and sent it to one of my other friends where I just talked about how good I was feeling about myself. And I was like, you know what? This is it. This is what I need. I need to be able to embrace the things that I do like about myself and lean into those parts of myself that I felt didn't belong before because they belong with me and they feel right to me. So if I can embody that confidence that's required to be able to show up in the world in a way that is both better for me and more impactful to others, then why would I not do that? And I feel like what you've shared with me throughout our conversation today is exactly that. You have to be able and willing to deal with the short-term discomfort to be able to benefit from the longer-term confidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's pretty much, that's been the motto for my whole life, you know, getting braces, all the dental work, all the surgeries, it's pain, it's physically painful, it's uncomfortable, you know, I was swollen, couldn't eat at times, but I kept telling myself, 
it'll all be worth it in the long run. And if you just, you know, same thing with emotions, setting boundaries, overcoming that social anxiety. If you just push through that fear and that discomfort, you are rewarded so tremendously with so many opportunities and such great self-growth and self-fulfillment that you can, the world is your oyster. You can go out and do anything that you want and feel amazing about yourself and never have to live feeling trapped by, uh, you know, your appearances or how you feel about yourself. It's a totally different world. Totally. And I feel like that's such a great way to round out the conversation, Christine. You've been really insightful. And as I've said a couple of times in the conversation, your your positivity just emanates. And I hope that the people listening have been able to not only learn a lot about you, but also are feeling more curious about themselves and hopefully will enter new conversations and new moments in their lives with people with a bit more of an open-mindedness and a a lot more empathy. And I just really appreciate the time that you've taken and the story that you've shared and your advocacy for people with cleft lip and palate. And also for the shout out to Smile Train. And I'll make sure to include all the good stuff in the show notes, links to their site, to your site and everything. But gang, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to check out christineerico.com for more. Christine's got a blog and you can also get a free consultation call with Christine about her coaching services. And I look forward to chatting with you again, Christine. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Nikki. I hope you have a great day. Thanks, you too. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid.